Psalm 146, verse 8 says, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Isaiah 29, verse 18 says, Out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 42, verse 6 The Lord says, speaking to the servant of the Lord, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. And tonight we come to the sixth of seven signs, each set in John's account of the Gospel, to give clear insight into the Godness of Jesus, His divinity. Proof of His being deity, written as John himself said in John 20, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. This evening, Father, we pray for sight. We ask for vision, for illumination, for revelation, because You are the God who opens the eyes of the blind. I love that, Father, that that was not a metaphorical prophecy. It was a literal prophecy. And until Jesus came, it could have been taken anyway, but Jesus came and the blind began to see. Well, I pray that, Father, if there's any blindness in our lives, any blind spots, any places that we are unaware of, perhaps secret sin or, or things that we are, we are walking in that are dark, I pray for the illumination of Jesus tonight. And I ask that You will clear up our vision. Help us to see. Help this fellowship to be a place where the blind receive their sight. And teach us by Your Spirit tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 9, verse 1. As He passed by, He saw a man blind from birth. As He passed by... So right away we need to know, we need to remember, Jesus is still in Jerusalem. It is still the day after Sukkot. Same day that He spoke that glorious I Am statement, I Am the Light of the World. It's as though when we read tonight that He spoke it, and now we're going to see what that means practically. I Am the Light of the World, He said. It's the same day that He showed tender mercy to the woman in the courtyard saying, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Same day, Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. Same day, because it was moments after Him saying this, they picked up stones to throw at Him. He slipped out of the temple complex, and on His way out, as He passed by, He saw a man. He saw... A man. Now I love how John writes. There are three specific words used for seeing in the Greek. A fourth one that that you could add in there. But three primary ones that are used. Three distinct words for seeing. Blepo is the first one. It's also an unknown Marx brother. Groucho, Harpo, Zeppo, and Blepo, right? Blepo in the Greek just means to casually look. It's the word I would expect John to use. As he's coming out of the temple, he sees a blind man. Oh, there he is, okay. The second word is thereo, where we get our word theory, and as you can assume, it means to carefully study. As, as we're doing tonight, we're going to thereo in John chapter 9. We're going to carefully study, we're going to look into these things and think it through. 
But the third word, the word that John uses here, as he passed by, he saw a man is Ida. Ida, in the Greek, means to comprehend or to perceive. This is not a casual glance and it's not a careful study. Jesus walks out of the temple, He looks and He perceives the man in His blindness. He comprehends what's going on. He he knows that word can also be used for know. I, I know what I'm going to do. He knew what He was about to do with a man who is blind from birth. And that means congenital blindness. This is not a man who lost his sight, who once had it, and then from some kind of macular degeneration or something loses his sight. No, he never had sight. This man is a man born with dead eyes. That's incredibly important to note in the story. Because what's about to happen here in the healing of the blind man is not restoration, it's creation. Jesus is going to take something dead and give it life. He's going to take something that's impossible and make it possible. And so here He comes. Passing by, He sees, He understands, He perceives a man with congenital blindness, verse 2. And His disciples asked Him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? The rabbis taught... And it was well understood in Israel in those days that in cases of birth defects or disease, somebody sinned. Someone done something wrong. Either the folks or Junior, somebody is a sinner here. Otherwise, he wouldn't be blind. And you might say, well, how can, how can Junior sin? If he's born blind, how could he possibly be the cause of his own sin? How can they even ask such a foolish question? Some rabbis taught... Going back to Genesis 25, reaching into the story of Jacob and Esau, the two brothers who the Bible tells us contended in the womb. They fought in the womb. And they say because of that, a fetus was capable of conscious sin. We're not talking about the Catholic theology of original sin. We're just talking about pure embryonic evil. Some rabbis taught and believed that. Now other rabbis came along and they taught generational sin. Bitterly dripping from one set of teeth to the next, from grandpa to father to son, and on down the line, Ezekiel 18 tells us there's no such thing. I'm not talking about the effects of one generation on the next. I'm talking about the responsibility. Ezekiel said, The Lord came to me, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Ezekiel 18, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel again, and you know God's serious when He calls you surely. Behold, all souls are mine, God says. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul whose sins will die. What about He will visit the sins of the fathers on the third and fourth generation? That's exactly it. He will visit each consecutive generation to see, are you still doing what the fathers did? But each and every generation is responsible for ourselves. And we've been over this. We've talked about this. You know, I am not 
called to account for my father's sins. My father's sins may affect me. My sins may affect my kids. But they're not responsible for it. I am. The soul who sins will die. And the soul who's righteous will be saved. thing is, neither perspective from the rabbis accurately reflects the character of God. The chesed. The, the grace of God. That He would condemn an infant before it's even out of the womb for some kind of evil? Or that He would hold someone responsible for something they didn't do? That is not God. The rabbis got it wrong. The disciples question here, who sinned? This man or his parents? Man, you know what? That's straight out of Job. You would think over 2,000 years they would have rethought the process. Job, I believe a contemporary of Abraham... Perhaps even alive. At the exact time that Abraham was, 2,000 years prior to Christ, Job's so-called friends made the same indictment of Job. They blamed his suffering on his sin. That's the only explanation, Job, for your suffering. You are a sinner. You must have done something wrong. We've got to figure out what you did wrong, and we've got to make it right so you can stop suffering. And Job said, in Job 6, verse 14, For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend, so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. My brothers have acted deceitfully like a wadi, like the torrents of wadis which vanish, like a turbid or or thick wadi because of ice and into which the snow melts. But when they become waterless, they're silent. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. And why are we pausing on just this second verse to talk about sin and and responsibility and, and these things? Listen, that passage in Job, it really speaks to me, especially because of where we've been, what we've been studying. Listen again, Job said, My brothers have acted deceitfully like a wadi, a wadi in Israel. You go in the dry season and they're nothing but crevices throughout the desert. All over the place. They look like veins cut throughout the desert with nothing in them. They're dry in the bottom. They're dry up the sides. A wadi. Get a heavy rain and they flood and fill. But it warms up and they just evaporate. There's nothing left. Listen, we are not called to be evaporating wadis in the way we treat people. We are those who have been given rivers of living water. Wells of living water within us. So I bring back this whole idea of the living water that wells up from within us, that is continual, that is constant in flow, so that when we see someone on the side of the road, when we see someone hurting, when we deal with a friend or a relative or someone who's in pain, we don't say, I wonder what they did. And we don't turn someone's pain into a theological conversation like the disciples do. They turn. It's amazing. They come out. Notice the difference between Jesus and the disciples. Jesus perceives the man. Jesus sees the man. They see sin. He sees a person lost in blindness. They see theological talking points. Rabbi. And I'm sure they're proud of themselves for coming up with this one. Hey, this will impress him. We're going to say something theological and bring up this great question. And when we do that, when we turn a person's hard, uh, hardship or lostness into sermonettes, 
were in danger of being evaporating wadis rather than wells of living water. It is our call to bring living water, grace, healing, mercy to those around us. You know, we talk a lot about the harvest around here. I mean, would you say I bring that up from time to time? That these are the days of the harvest? That we are called as workers to the harvest? Time to roll up our sleeves, get out there, tell people about Jesus, bring His love, bring His grace to a thirsty world. We talk about this all the time. But gang, talk is cheap. I can bring it up every week. Compassion compels action. And what Jesus has coming out of the temple, His life just threatened, by the way. I wouldn't be surprised if as He slipped through the crowd, a rock went whizzing by His left ear, you know? And yet the first thing He does is perceive a man in his condition. And the compassion wells up in Jesus like living water. Revelation 22.17 says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears... Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. And I love that because it's not just the Spirit who says that. It's the Spirit and the Bride. It is the Spirit within the Bride speaking to this world. If you're thirsty, come. There is living water enough for all. So instead of who sinned, a better question might have been, Lord, how can we help Him? Lord, come here. You think maybe you could heal him? What can we do to make this man's life better? You see, it doesn't matter who's at fault for the man's condition. That's beside the point. It's not about who's to blame. It's about who can save. And Jesus answered verse 3 and says, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, you may have read that. We looked at that Sunday briefly. And you might read that and say, that doesn't seem fair. That this man has been blind his whole life so Jesus could come along and do a miracle? Does that bother anybody else? It used to bother me a lot. 30 years at least this man has been blind. Why 30? I'll tell you in a minute. But this guy's... 30 or older, blind his whole entire life. And Jesus says, well, the reason for this is not because anybody did anything wrong. It's primarily because, well, I was going to do a miracle. We're going to display some power here, and that's why he's blind. Well, that doesn't sound right. That's not what he's saying. The blindness is only a result of sin so much as this is a fallen, polluted world. This is a world in which the bloodline of humanity is corrupt. Disease and death, gang, they are part of the deal. Christian or not, people get sick, people die. The corruption is in the world. The Bible is clear about that. But... Paul wrote in Romans 8.28, you know the verse, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Jesus is not saying, this man was born blind so bad I could do this. He's saying, we came upon this man today that I might work the works of God. 
In other words, though he is born blind, though he's afflicted, though he has this the same corruption that the world has, I'm here to do something marvelous. Now Jesus could have just walked on by. Now you might say, I can't see what God is doing. And I wonder if the blind man ever had those thoughts as he sat there begging on the side of the road, why me? Why was I born blind? My parents can see. Brothers and sisters, maybe. They can see. How come me, Lord? Why me? I can't see what you're doing. And if you ever think that, let me encourage you. Paul said we walk by faith and not by sight. Many of you have heard the name Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby is a a famous hymn writer. She wrote over 8,000 hymns for the church. Including a hymn called Face to Face with Christ, My Savior. But Fanny Crosby, six weeks after she was born, got sick and became blind. And was blind the rest of her life. One time a well-meaning preacher came up to her and said, Miss Crosby, I, I, I think it's a great pity that the Master did not give you sight when He showered so many other gifts upon you. She replied, If at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I was born blind. Because when I get to heaven, the first face that I that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. Point is this, what to some is an infirmity, to others is the road to eternity. And so if you have some hardship in your life, it's not so that God is making it hard so that eventually, ultimately, He can pop in there and glorify Himself. He's working in each and every one of us. His will, His perfect will. The works of God. It was so the works of God might be displayed in Him. By the way, the works of God does not mean physical healing. As we will see in a few minutes. By day's end, Jesus will have this guy saved. And I guarantee you, he never looked back. If we were to ask this man, when we get to heaven, do you ever wish you had those 30 years back? I highly doubt he's even given it a second thought. Verse 4, Jesus says, We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world, He says again. Now listen, as we talked about Sunday, quickly He is referring in part to His own death. The day is short. Night is coming when no one can work. I only have limited time before my death comes along. But as we read on Sunday, and I've got to repeat this, Alexander McLaren, the light went into the valley of the shadow of death and lit it up from end to end. I just love that. Jesus went into the darkest place that He might might be light for us. So that for us, we might say as Paul said, Romans 13, 12, the night is almost gone, the day is near, therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. But Jesus says, when I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And when He had said this, He spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied it, the clay that is, to His Eyes. This is the only time Jesus ever does this. 
Two other miracles involve spit. One where he heals a blind man, he spits in his eyes, and gradually the blind man can see. In the other case, the case he, he, he spits on his fingers, he puts his fingers in the ears of a deaf man, and then puts spit on his other finger and touches the deaf and mute man's tongue to show him what he's doing, and he heals him. But in this case, it's the only time he makes a little mud poultice, spitting on the ground, mixing it with the dust of the earth. Why clay? Because creation's taking place. This is the stuff of creation. Jesus, who is the light of the world, may in some cool way be drawing us back to after God said, let there be light, He drew the dust of the earth together and He created man. And so Jesus does a very similar thing. The light of the world now takes the dirt of the ground, mixing it with His own spit, makes this clay, and and applies it to these dead, lifeless eyes to animate them via the dust of the earth and the spittle of the Savior. Verse 7. He said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated, John tells us, sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. What an intriguing miracle. When you look at all the miracles of Jesus, and we've looked at many through the Gospels, many are not even reported in the Gospels, but of the ones that we've seen, think about how unique each one is. It's almost like the miracles are tailor-made to the person. Or to the moment. And in this case, he takes the man through a very interesting thing. Jesus, you know, could have said, be healed, and the man's eyes would come to life and he would see immediately. He could have done that. Jesus could have spit in the guy's eyes like he did in a previous blind man's eyes. He said, can you see now? But he makes this mud and then says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Well, if he's just come out of the temple, they're in the upper part of Jerusalem, and the man would have to make his way all the way down to the south end of the city of David to get to the pool of Siloam in the first place. It's going to take a little effort. All the while, he's got mud in his eyes. So you've got to get down there and, and get back. Why this intriguing process? First of all, Jesus sends him to the pool of Siloam, as John very clearly tells us, because the pool means sent one. I want you to go to the pool of the sent. The pool of the sent one. Go there and wash. Why? Because Jesus is presenting himself as the sent one of God. This is a major theme running through the Gospel of John. The sent one. The one whom the Father has sent. In fact, that phrase, the one whom the Father sent, is used seven times in the Gospel. And there are numerous other phrases that Jesus says, for for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God sent Jesus. John says this over and over and over. And Jesus prays in John 17.3, This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He says to the man in his blindness, in his darkness, you got to go to the sent. If you want to see, do you get this? If you want to see, you got to go to the sent one. you got to go to the pool called sent that will wash you and give you sight. It's a beautiful picture. But all the way to the pool, 
down to the south end of the city of David. How would it feel to have that grimy, soily, crunchy paste in your eyes? Can you imagine Visine or Bausch and Lomb trying to market this? People are falling all over themselves for the newest product in our product line. Here's mud in your eye. It's a big pasty substance made of a man's spit and dirt from the ground. Rub it in your eyes and see how it works for you. I mean, I have trouble with like the thick eye drops. I have trouble when a little piece of lint gets in my eyes. This guy has mud caked on his eyes and he has to go all the way down the pool and all the way down there. Wouldn't it be irritating? Uncomfortable? Anyone with me on this? Do we need to go outside and do some practical testing? (laughs) And so down he goes. Why does Jesus do it this way? And better yet, how would it feel to get the water of the pool of Siloam and begin to wash it out? He would go from irritation to soothing relief. When life gets irritating, when your vision gets blurred... When the world is an eyesore, go wash in the pool of the sent one. When you're frustrated, you know what the worst thing you can do on a Wednesday evening when you've had a long day of work and you're frustrated? Stay home. Worst move you can make. But if you've had a long day and on the other hand you're feeling irritated and frustrated, you you go to worship, what happens? Better yet, you open the Word of God. And it's like washing in the pool of of the sent one. Ephesians 5.25 tells us Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, the pool of the sent one. Gang, what I'm saying is wash in the Word of God. Be washed in the Word. When life is frustrating, get washed in the Word. When life is irritating, get washed in the Word. When you can't see clearly, when you're having difficulty discerning, get washed in the Word of God. And you will receive your sight. Didn't we just say a few minutes ago that the living water was the Holy Spirit? And doesn't Jesus make that illusion that living water is the Holy Spirit? So so how can we say now that the pool of Siloam, that washing in that water, how can you say that's the Word of God? Perhaps it's the Spirit of God. Listen, this is an important distinction in the Scriptures. If it's about quenching thirst, it's the Holy Spirit. John 4.14 Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water which I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And also John 7.37 and 38 That living water, that speaks of the Holy Spirit. Thirst quenching. But, if it's about washing or cleansing, it speaks of the Word of God. Living water, quenching the thirst, the Holy Spirit. Water that washes, water that cleanses, water that sanctifies, it speaks of the Word of God. Every time, you can make that very clear distinction. John 15, verse 3, Jesus says, You are already clean because of the Word which I have spoken to you. John 17, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as we just read that Paul wrote, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The word is a cleansing agent. 
The Word cleanses out the grimes and the irritations and the dirt and the filth of our lives so that we can see more clearly. That's what the Word does. While at the same time, the living water of the Holy Spirit quenches our thirst. It's not either or. It's both and. The quenching and the washing of the sent one. The Spirit of the sent one and the Word of the sent one. Now verse 8. He comes back seeing. And this is where it gets really interesting. In fact, most of chapter 9 is not Jesus having conversation. Most of chapter 9 is this blind man in conversation. Follow this through. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying... Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? And others were saying, this is he. Others were saying, no, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one. It's me. So they were saying to him, verse 10, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who's called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. Several things make this man's story absolutely credible. Number one, he doesn't know where Jesus is. Why? Because the last point of contact, he was blind. He wouldn't have any idea. Jesus told him to go wash. He went and washed. He doesn't know where Jesus is. It absolutely lends itself to the story that he's speaking. Besides the fact, he wouldn't know where Jesus is even if he saw him face to face because he had never seen him face to face. He would not know what Jesus looked like. Jesus could walk right by him. He wouldn't know. Where's Jesus? I don't know. Makes sense. Secondly, he doesn't mention that Jesus spit to make clay. In fact, every time he recounts the story through the chapter, what he says over and over is, he made clay. He doesn't know that Jesus spit to make clay. Now, maybe that's good. (laughs) He's not aware of how this substance was put together. Why doesn't he know? Because he didn't see him do it. All he knew was suddenly there was clay being applied to his eyes. Where did it come from? How did it get made? He didn't know. He was blind. Again, it makes the story credible. And also what's interesting is at this point the man is still in the dark as to the nature of Jesus. He just calls him the man who is called Jesus. But watch the progression of his faith. Because through the chapter, every time he refers to Jesus, he changes the story just a little bit. He changes the the phraseology. He changes what he calls or how he refers to Jesus. And it begins with him calling him, in verse 11, the man who's called Jesus. That's all he knows about it. Verse 13. Well, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. I like that. Do you realize that we were all formerly something messed up? We were either formerly blind, or we were formerly dumb, or we were formerly lame. Many of us were formerly dumb and lame. We were formerly... One thing, that we are no longer because of the healing of Jesus. So they brought the man who was formerly blind. Verse 14, now it was a Sabbath. 
(laughs) on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. How did it happen? And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And note that Jesus causes division among people. It's not a bad thing. It's just who He is. It's the character, the nature of Christ forces people to accept or reject Him. To receive or deny Him. You can't stay neutral with Jesus. He he demands too much. And it will either offend you or it will draw you to Him. But He divides. And they're all divided over this. It's interesting, you can almost hear the argument going on. Some of the Pharisees saying, the last time this Jesus was in town, he had a lame man carry his pallet on the Sabbath, and now he's Sabbath breaking all over the place. He's making mud on the Sabbath. (gasps) What? Why is mud making? Why is spitting on the ground and making a little mud poultice and applying it to the eyes, why is that breaking Sabbath? Check this out. Of the 39 categories which we've discussed of disallowed work on Shabbat, one of those categories possibly being applied here was kneading. As in dough. That if a woman was going to make bread, she could not do it on the Sabbath. All kneading had to take place the day before or the day after, not on the Sabbath. That was too much work, all that kneading. So, you know. (laughs) Kneading. As if mixing a mun spit poultice was out of the question. But this one's also interesting to me. Both the Mishnah... Tractate Shabbat 7.2, you can look it up. And the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Abu Dazera. Both these writings of Jewish interpretation of the law discuss whether or not it is permissible to anoint sore eyes on the Sabbath. That's how legalistic it became. To have discussions over whether or not you could pop some some visine in your eyes. Whether or not you could see an ophthalmologist. Whether or not you could apply ointment to soreness on the Sabbath. Well, that could be work. Does anybody want to live like that? Does anyone want, want to carry around that weight of law? See, God gave the law so the sin would increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That's what Jesus invites us to. Now, i got to give just a little nod to the Jewish people here, because honestly, though it sounds ridiculous to non-Jewish ears, to question whether or not you could apply salve or knead dough or mud, as it were, on the Sabbath, give them this credit. When all you have to present to God is your self-righteousness, you better dot every I and cross every T. You don't want to miss a thing. And in misunderstanding grace and not knowing the chesed of God and why Jesus came, it makes sense why they would go to such lengths to lay out every possible nuance of the law to keep every possible nuance so that they could be righteous before God. 
please don't do that as a Christian. Be careful that you don't get caught up in your own self-righteousness. You will wear yourself out trying to keep it together. In fact, you can't do it. You just keep coming to Jesus. You keep seeking His grace. You hang out with Him. And He will take care of the rest. The real tragedy here is that the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders are blind to the miraculous because of their binding traditions. But they have another problem that they got to figure out. Someone brings this up. How can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? If he's violating Shabbat, which by the way, he never did violate the Sabbath. He violated their interpretations of the laws of the Sabbath. He always kept the Sabbath. He was the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. But their interpretations, he violated all over the place because they were dead wrong. But to their thinking, if this guy violates the Sabbath, then he must be a sinner. But how can a sinner perform such a miracle? How can a sinner do this? They are caught between a rock and a hard place. A miracle of godly compassion. And such power. That couldn't be wielded by a sinner, could it? Verse 17, So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, note this, he's a prophet. We've just moved from a man called Jesus to a prophet. The guy's processing. He's shifting his position on Jesus now. And he's beginning to see the light. Verse 18, The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And they questioned them saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? And his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son. We know that he was born blind, verse 21, but how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him, that is Jesus, to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. That's how we know the guy was at least 30. Because he was of age. And in Jewish thought, in Jewish thinking, you might say, well, what about the bar mitzvah? 13, that's of age. No, 13, yeah, that's that's coming into, that's coming out of childhood. But that's not the tradition that was kept, especially in the days of Jesus. It was the age of 30. That's when you're really a mature adult. Why? Numbers chapter 4 says seven different times that a priest enters the priesthood upon coming of age at 30. So the priest came of age at 30 to enter the priesthood. They assumed that would just apply then. If you're 30 years old, you have come of age. He is of age. Ask him. And so we make the assumption the guy must have been at least 30 years old. Verse 24. So, a second time they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he's a sinner, I I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Don't miss that. He just spoke his witness. His personal testimony. That's it. 
All I know is I was blind, and now I see. Jake, in preparation for the Philippines mission trip, had all the kids working on their testimonies. You may recall from the last trip they took, and they came home and some of the kids on Sunday morning shared their testimony here with the fellowship. And I'm hoping we'll have them do that again. His personal testimony. And it's funny because Anna Marie came home and she was like, Dad, you got to help me work on my testimony. I'm like, it's not my testimony. <laughs> it's yours. I, I have said that in jest because I like to freak her out, you know. <laughs> Honey, it's, it's your testimony. Well, what does that mean? I don't know what my testimony is. And I said, what has Jesus done in your life? Well, He brought me from Ghana to here. That's part of your testimony. He, this is Anna Marie. He let me go to Israel. It's part of your testimony. And He's sending me to the Philippines. That's part of your testimony. See, He brought you from Ghana to America to Israel to the Philippines. Do you think maybe He's doing something big in your life? I said, think, Anna Marie, about where you were, what your life was like, and how Jesus got a hold of you and what He's doing now. That's your testimony. I was blind and now I see. Personal testimony. Please hear me on this. The guy was not trained in combating cultural relativism. He wasn't suddenly studied on the ramifications of postmodernism. I can deal with that. I'll, I'll deal with those, those postmodernists. He is not schooled in the implications of scientific rationalism. He hasn't been trained up in Christian apologetics. All he knows is I was blind and now I see. That's his testimony. That's my testimony. That's yours. It's not about learning all these things. And yes, we need to be in the Word. And yes, we need to be fervent in prayer so the Spirit can develop in us and and give us words to draw off of. But my friends, your testimony is not something learned. It's something experienced. It's something that nobody but you could ever or has ever experienced. What has Jesus done in your life? That's your testimony. And by the way, that is more powerful than a thousand scriptures that you could spout off to someone in the mall. What Jesus has done in me, to me, that's where faith begins. Think about it. What flipped the switch on in your life to bring you to faith, that's your testimony. And that's what God wants to use with somebody else to flip the switch on in their life. I was blind... Now I see. That's where every Jesus follower begins. I was blind, now I see. I was lost, now I'm found. I was dead, now I'm alive. I was prodigal, now I'm home. It's very simple. And again, that's not to say we don't then grow up in our faith. But as we grow, never ever lose sight of that awesome life-changing moment. When you gave your life to Jesus. Here's how it works. Colossians chapter 2 verse 6. Therefore as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception Cultural relativism, postmodernism, scientific rationalism. I could throw out a whole lot of isms, you know what I'm saying. 
philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. What Paul says is remember how you got saved. Never forget that. And at the same time, grow up in Jesus. Because from beginning to end, it must always come back to Jesus. It's always got to be about Jesus. Positions, opinions, philosophies, traditions, even ideals and values and belief systems are simply not enough. I'll say again what I've said before recently. We are not trying to make people Christians like us. We are trying to introduce them to Jesus. We are not trying to bring them along in affinity to join us in our belief system. We're trying to show them Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's our message and what Jesus did for us. So your personal testimony is powerful. What He's done and what He's doing. Verse 26, continuing on. So they said to Him... What did He do to you? How did He open your eyes? They keep asking this question. Over and over and over. Have you been hearing it? How did He do it? And the problem is, it's not about how He did it. It's about who. It's never about how. It's about who. Once you know the who of the story, the how takes care of itself. Once you know that this is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the how doesn't really matter. You know? How did He do it? Here's mud in your eye. Did He spit in your eye? Did He put His fingers in your ear? Did He give you a miracle from a distance? It doesn't matter. He's Jesus. He can do it however He wants to. The point is the person. Verse 27. He answered them. "How, How did He open your eyes? He said, I told you already and you did not listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become His disciples too, do you? And I honestly, I don't think He's saying that innocently. Uh, The Greek implies a note of sarcasm in His voice. (laughs) You don't want to become disciples too, do you? Is that why you keep bugging me? (laughs) But I like the word too. Because that tells us something else is now changing. He went from the man who is called Jesus to calling Jesus a prophet, now to saying, you do not want to become disciples too, do you? He's starting to become a disciple. He's starting to think of himself as a follower of Jesus. And by the way, getting saved is rarely instantaneous. It often is a process by which a moment comes to the instant of realization. Don't feel bad. Maybe you bring someone to the fellowship and they're sitting there and they're coming day after day, week after week, year after year and they've never given their life, never openly stood up and said, I believe in Jesus. Never gone into the waters of baptism. And you're sitting there going, man, when is it going to happen? Hey, they're in process. You just keep praying for them and the moment will come. Here's a man in process. The man called Jesus, a prophet. Am I a disciple? He's beginning to think this way. Well, verse 28, they reviled him. And they said, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moshe. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he's from. Apparently they didn't appreciate the banter one bit. 
And John is very clear from the use of the word reviled that their retort is demeaning and accusatory. They're taking the man down a notch. This word revile is loidoreo. Loidoreo, it doesn't mean standing around. Loidoreo means to insult or to slander. And they are trying to be insulting. You follow that Jesus. We follow Moses, implying that the man did not. Verse 30, the man answered. I love the answer. Watch this. He said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does His will, He hears them, or He hears Him. Now, give the guy a little credit here. He's, He's on the path of discipleship. That doesn't mean that every word out of his mouth is absolutely true. Okay, He's learning. We know that God does not hear sinners. Is that true? God doesn't hear sinners? I mean, some of you are shaking your heads. If God didn't hear sinners, none of us would be here. If God didn't hear sinners, none of us would be saved. Listen, God can hear whomever He wants. We have instances in Scripture, I won't take you there now, but instances in the Bible where sinners prayed... And God answered their prayer. Not praying a prayer of salvation, just praying for intervention. And God said, all right, I'm going to intervene for you, even though they didn't believe. Yes, God can respond to, hear, move on the prayer of a sinner. But here's the thing. The limitations are not on God's ears. The limitations are on man's heart. We are the limitations of God's hearing. If I'm crying out to God, but I'm in rebellion, no. He's not paying attention. It doesn't mean that somehow, cosmically, God can't hear. As if a person in rebellion goes... And God's like, man, I wish I could hear that guy. It's like me in the kitchen. Drives me nuts. David, my sweet little David... Talk to David sometime. Just go ahead. Ask him a question and see if you can hear him. I've never heard a more soft-spoken child in the world. Hey, David, how was your day? And I know he's talking. So we got a a six-year-old soft speaker, a low talker in my house, and a 50-year-old who's losing his hair and fast... I'm in the kitchen this morning. He's sitting at the counter. I'm in the kitchen. The fan's on. I'm cooking up eggs. And David's like, Dad! Which he says loudly. I was like, yeah. Yes, David. (laughs) And he's going on and on and on. And I know it's something of great importance to him. And so, of course, I'm doing the parental, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm telling him, you know. Could be anything. That's not God. It's not that God's looking down and going, oh, I'm just, I I can't hear you. It's that He will not respond to a heart that is hard against Him. You know the scene, if you've seen the, uh, the movie Bruce Almighty, the first one with Jim Carrey. The scene where he decides to turn prayers into post-it notes, which is hilarious. The whole room turns into post-it notes. As if God is sitting up there cosmically trying to keep track of and answer every single prayer that every single person is praying, whether they believe in Him or not. 
He does hear the prayer of repentance. He does, when it fits His best interest and and His will, He does respond to the prayers from time to time of non-believers. But honestly, what does the Bible tell us? Proverbs 15.29, The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. Psalm 66.18, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer, David says. Why? He was a man after God's own heart. James 5.16, you've heard the verse, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So I've got to ask you gentlemen, why at 5.30 Wednesday night prayer is the room filled with women and very few men? And I don't mean that as a judgment. But what I begin to wonder is, don't we have any righteous men? Or is it that we don't have a whole lot of guys who accept and understand that they are made righteous in Jesus? And and ladies, why aren't there more people there? Again, please don't take this as guilt tripping. If, If there are two people there, Jesus is there. The prayer is powerful. It's not about numbers. But I'm asking the question for all of us, why when there are opportunities to pray, are there not more of us turning out? And perhaps, maybe, it's because we don't believe our prayers are the effective ones. Now we got to call in Les and Donna. We'll get some effective praying. Now, you will. But you realize that in Jesus Christ, you are righteous And that makes your prayer effective. So don't hold back. Well, I don't know what to say. It doesn't matter. The Spirit will tell you. Well, I'm uncomfortable praying out loud. Get over it. (laughs) The effective prayer of a righteous man. You are made righteous in Christ. If I turn my heart... That's why I said before... It's not a problem with God's hearing. It's a problem with my heart. The reason that, as Shakespeare said in Hamlet, my thoughts go up, my prayers stay low. Prayers without thoughts never to heaven go. It's not His ears. It's my heart. And if I'm going to give my heart to Jesus, if I turn my heart to Jesus, He will carry my prayers. He will get the word across. He will make interpretation and intercession and mediation for me. God is not looking for perfect people. He's looking for people made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, He is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. You know what that means? That means Jesus lives To pray for you. Do you live for something? Man, I just live for Wednesday nights. You know, or I live for Sunday mornings, or I live for time with my kids and with my wife and my family. I live for Jesus lives to make intercession for you. He loves it. So let him. Give him the opportunity. First Timothy two eight. Therefore, I want the men, and I'm calling you guys. I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. 
Why doesn't Paul say that to the women? Because the women already probably were praying. The men were watching football. (laughs) Bros, we need you praying. Jesus loves to hear you praying. Verse 32. So the man says this. He's he's a little off theologically, not certain, but he's kind of saying what he knows. And then he says, verse 32, and this is absolutely true, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Congenital blindness has no cure. I'm not talking about minimal vision. I'm not talking about someone who's born with really, you know, 2400 sight. I'm talking about someone with dead eyes. Someone whose eyes simply don't work. The rods and cones are all messed up. You know, there's nothing there to function. Interesting, in 2007... There was a breakthrough genetic study treating what's called Leber's congenital amaurosis. Leber's congenital amaurosis, which is rare, but is the cause of most blindness in the United States. At least what they would call congenital blindness or blindness from children at birth. It affects one to two children out of every hundred thousand. And they began doing a gene study with very promising results reshaping a gene and actually injecting it into the eye to try and cause some regeneration. And it was promising. But two things in the study. One, if there was zero vision, it didn't work. There had to be something going on in there. And two, even among those who had improved vision or could see within three years the photoreceptors in their eyes began to degenerate again. And here we are, 2,000 years after the man says this, and it's true, congenital blindness is not something we have learned how to cure. So the man is kind of answering the how. How could Jesus do this? How could a person do this? How could a man? No one's ever done it. No human being. But the God-man. Jesus Christ. Verse 34. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? And so they put him out. (laughs) As soon as they realized they were losing their own argument, right? How dare this young man, born entirely of sin, how does he think he can school us? Interesting, their beloved King David claimed to be the same. Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And the truth is, we're all born in sin. We all have a sin nature. Now let me draw a very fine line here. There is a difference between having a sin nature and original sin. Original sin is the theology that Adam sinned and Adam's sin now is stuck on you. But see, God already cleared that one up in Ezekiel 18. The soul that sins will die. 
Each person is responsible for their own sin. Paul even says, I believe it's in Romans 5 or Romans 6, it's right in there, where Paul makes the case, those who have sinned, though not in the likeness of Adam, but we've all sinned. We all have a sin nature. We all have the propensity to sin. That's not original sin, that's the sin nature. And so an infant born isn't automatically originally sinful. But they learn really fast. (laughs) Because the sin nature is hard at work. Here come these Pharisees and their staunch, self-righteous pride and arrogance, they can't see a word he's saying. By the way, you long-haul saints, you believers who have been around for many years, can you learn from a new believer? Can we old schoolers learn from a younger generation of Jesus people? I hope we never respond or act like the Pharisees do here. Who are you, young man, young woman, young person, to tell me about my faith? When we go there, there's pride creeping up. Well, they put him out. Now, I want you to note this. They put him out. The implication here is far more serious than booting him out the door. They put him out. What's indicated, looking back at verse 22, is they put him out of the synagogue. This was the very thing his parents feared the most. Verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. What that means is not only you could not go into the synagogue, but you were out of fellowship with the Jewish community. You were ostracized. Kicked out. The church leaders stood up in front of the congregation and said, no one is to talk to this guy anymore. He's out. He's a sinner. Don't associate with him. Don't do business with him. Certainly don't allow him in the doors of the synagogue or the temple. They put him out. Ostracized from the Jewish community, put out of the synagogue. I believe that's what took place. Watch Jesus. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, stopped there, he found him. The blind man didn't find Jesus. He didn't know what Jesus looked like. He couldn't find Jesus. But the moment Jesus heard what had happened, he found him. He went looking for him. I love it. Jesus didn't heal the blind man of his blindness, give him sight, and then forget about him. On to the next illness. On to the next disease. No. When this man gets put out, Jesus goes and finds him, and He says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, I can't prove this, but because of the man's response, this is messianic. And the implication on Jesus' lips when He says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He is, he is calling out that name. That name that is applied to Mashiach in the Hebrew Scriptures. Son of Man is equivalent to Messiah in Jewish thought. Which is why Jesus used it so much. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And He answered, Who is He, Lord or Sir, that I may believe in Him? And Jesus said, 
You have both seen Him, and He is the one who is talking with you. What does Jesus mean? Two things. You have both seen Him, past tense. You've already seen Him. He was blind. But Jesus says, you've already seen Messiah. And He's the one talking to you. And He said, Lord, I believe! And He worshipped Him. And the word worshipped, proskuneo, in the Greek, is to fall upon the knees and literally touch the ground with the forehead as an expression of profound reverence. Lord, I believe! And down He goes. And He's worshipping at the feet of Jesus. And note this. Jesus doesn't stop Him. And that would have been blasphemy if Jesus was anyone other than God. If Jesus was lower than God, subservient to God, a prophet, a teacher, a miracle worker, but not actually God in the flesh, for Him to receive worship would be blasphemy. God says, I share my glory with no one. And the man falls down and worships Him. Jesus doesn't stop him. What a marvelous progression of faith. You know, there's a story in the Scriptures of the blind man who Jesus heals, the other one with the spit. And he spits in his eyes and says, Do you see? The blind man says, "Ah, It's kind of hazy. Does it again. Now do you see? See something like trees walking around. Which I think was the second installment of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I'm not sure. He does it a third time and the guy now can see it. So there's this process of helping the man see. That's what's going on in John chapter 9. The process of the man coming to see the light of the world. And bit by bit, he moves along this path from the man called Jesus to a prophet, to a man from God, to hear a declaration of worship. Lord, I believe! But if the man had never seen Jesus... How could he believe that this was really the same Jesus who had healed him before? How could he know for certain? Anyone? He heard his voice. He knew his voice. And Paul says in Romans 10:17, faith comes from hearing. And hearing by the word, the rema, the spoken word there of Christ. And so the man who was formerly blind heard that sweet voice and knew this is the Jesus who gave him sight. And as Jesus will later say to Thomas and the apostles, blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. And that's how Jesus could say to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who's talking with you. You saw me when you heard me. You saw me when faith began to well up. You've already seen me. When you get to see Jesus, when I see Jesus, when we meet Him in the clouds and see Him for the first time face to face, it will not be the first time you see Jesus. Because if you believe in Him by faith, you have already seen Him. If you have heard the Word and the Word has produced faith in your heart, you've already seen Him. Now, we'll see Him more clearly. It'll be marvelous. It'll be wonderful. But there will not be one of us, mark my words, there will not be one of us wandering around the clouds going, which one is he? Which one is he? (laughs) 
He taps you on the shoulder, you turn around. Yeah? It is I. Wow, I just didn't recognize you. You will know when we see Him. Verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. And I told you, Sunday, it's not judgment as in Jesus judging the world. He didn't come in His first coming to judge the world. He will judge the world in His second coming. But in His first coming, judgment happened. The Pharisees were divided. Some were buying Him, some were not. The people were divided. Some believed, some did not. They all made judgments. And it was for that judgment that Jesus came into the world. That people would judge rightly what was true or what was not true. And those who are looking for the truth will see Him and believe. And those who do not want the truth will grow more blind than they were before. He's the light of the world. McLaren says light has a twofold effect. It is torture to the diseased eye. It is gladdening to the sound eye. We might put it this way. Light has a twofold effect. It's painful early in the morning when you don't want to get out of bed. It's joyful in about August when we finally have spring in the Northwest. Light can either pierce or it can awaken. John Corson put it this way, I like this. You turn on a light in a barn and the birds sing and the rats scatter. That's judgment. The birds and the rats are making different judgment. And so those who are looking for the coming of Jesus, to that person, they see. And those who do not want Jesus to come, and those who want to live on their own, and those who are living and standing in rebellion to all things related to God, are going to get darker and darker and darker until they cannot see a thing. Absolute blindness, the light of the world, reveals the heart of the individual. Verse 40. So those of the Pharisees who were with Him heard these things, and they said to Him, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. Wow. Those who are blind but want to see will be able to see. Those who claim to see but really don't want to see, not God's way, will ultimately become permanently blind. Blind to what? Blind to the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Who is the light of the world? Here's how it works. I want to show you one last thing. Turn quickly, real quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Hurry up, I'm already there. Come on. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how the light of the world, Jesus, now works in and through His people today. And I'll just let Paul's words kind of hang out there and you can think about these as you go your way tonight. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, 
As we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God. Note that. We don't have to change it around to get the world to understand. I'm thankful for updated translations, but you know what? The King James does just fine. I'm thankful that we have accurate translations, but we don't have to get it so in the vernacular that it loses the power. We don't have to rework things and redo things. Man, just teach the Word. Just share the truth. He says, we don't have to do that. We don't walk in craftiness. We're not selling something. We don't adulterate the Word of God. But by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now here's the key. Listen to this. For we do not preach ourselves. We do not preach the bridge. Come be a bridgeite. Come be a bridgian. Come be a bridgemologist. I don't know, whatever. We don't do that. We preach Christ Jesus as Lord. And ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Note that we are commending ourselves, verse 2, to every man's conscience in the sight of God. How? By shining the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We reflect that light into other people's lives and then they have to decide what they're going to do with it. Then the judgment becomes theirs. The division. And your faith, mark my words, your faith will divide people into two camps. Those who really like seeing Jesus and those who prefer the darkness. Our job is simply to be a bunch of little flashlights for the Lord in the world. Because Fanny Crosby was right, when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. You know you're going to see Him one day soon. I can't wait. Psalm 27.4, David said, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. Oh, Father, that day is coming. And many of us, Lord, believe we are just right around the corner. And we look forward to turning that corner, to being called up to seeing Jesus who we already know. Lord, as we walk the final few steps, as we come around the corner, may we live lives worthy of the calling of the Gospel of Jesus.